Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The virus is spreading in all member states. Nous sommes en guerre. This is ernst. And when Europe really needed to prove that this is not only a fair weather union, too many initially refused to share their umbrella. Welcome to another special episode of EU Confidential focused on the coronavirus crisis. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, coming to you from my spare room slash home office. I'm sure many of you know that feeling these days, but I hope you're staying well in these strange times. And we hope these podcasts are keeping you company as well as informed about how Europe is responding to the coronavirus. Feedback's always welcome to podcast at politico.eu. Now, in this episode, we'll delve into the issue of testing. What kind of tests are there? Who can get them and who can't and why? We'll also look into the EU's economic response. If you're wondering what a corona bond is and why it's become such a totemic issue, we've got you covered. But first, let's talk to Dr. Herman Hoosens. He's a professor of microbiology at the University of Antwerp and an expert on infectious diseases. He's also coordinator of the European Union's Platform for European Preparedness Against Re-Emerging Epidemics and of another EU group specifically focused on COVID-19. He spoke to me and senior health reporter Sarah Wheaton about how prepared the EU was for this pandemic, how it's dealing with things now and about when things might get back to some semblance of normality. Just a final word before we start, like much of life these days, the interview was done via video conference and the connection was not the best. But it's a very interesting interview, so worth sticking with it, even if the audio is not quite studio quality. So I know that you're a scientist, but let's imagine that you have some magic powers and you could go back in time and you could snap your fingers and get um, governments to do something uh, or to react a certain way, take some sort of action um, to prepare for the coronavirus outbreak. What date would you go back to and what would you get officials to do? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Now I need to think really very hard which day I would go back to. Um, I would go back to the second half of January. That's where I would go, not a particular day, but I would go back to the second half of January when we see that this virus is clearly capable of spreading person to person, when we see the virus emerging in other countries, and when we see the virus particularly spreading through travel air, um, because there were some models predicting where the virus would appear outside of China, and these models were pretty accurate predicting exactly based on traveling where the virus indeed, in which cities, major cities, the virus could emerge. 
then I would have scaled up diagnostics. I would have made sure that the reference labs work with their first-line diagnostic labs, prepare reference material to circulate with these first-line diagnostic labs so that they not only start developing this test uh, in their own lab, but also that they can test and evaluate this with the, the material provided by the reference lab. Because this is something that could have been done easily in January, because on the 25th of January, we published a paper in your surveillance and presented, or at least um, explained, how every lab can do a rapid molecular diagnostic test. That was a time where labs could start developing their own diagnostic test. So that's what I would have done very rapidly already in the second half of January. But if you, if you allow me to go back now, based on what I know now, I would have also, and that would be the lesson for the future, I would have also made sure that we have different types of diagnostic tests in a country, that we don't depend on one manufacturer, but we have different manufacturers and so that if one has problems with these liquids, we can still have other tests from other manufacturers in that particular country. So that's something that I would have done. And then the next thing I would have done, and this is actually I had something I had proposed in Europe, but also in my own country, and it was not done. And I really regret that it wasn't done. I would have said, okay, this is a virus that causes a uh, respiratory infection very similar to flu. You cannot differentiate a the symptoms caused by the flu virus from the symptoms caused by this coronavirus. So let's then test all patients where we test for the influenza virus, also for the coronavirus. If we would have done that, we would have realized that this virus was already spreading in Europe the second half of January. And I think we would have realized that we need to respond more rapidly and put people in quarantine when they're tested positive. And that's the mistake that we have made. The virus was spreading under our nose without realizing that actually this virus was spreading in several countries, because I'm convinced that in Italy the virus was already spreading the second half of January and uh, later on and also in other countries, but we simply didn't test. So that has been, I think, a major mistake that was made, nobody to be blamed for, a lesson to be learned, but I think it was a major mistake that we made uh, when this virus appeared in Europe. Why do you think nobody's to be blamed for that? Well, because we all, under, we all, we have to be honest, because we all underestimated the infection of, of the virus. And I'm one of the first to admit, so I was pleading to test more. Um, I was not uh, appreciated for that, but I certainly also underestimated how infectious the virus is. And I think all scientists should be very honest about this, nobody would have predicted how quickly this virus would have spread. I think we need to be very honest. Um, but in the future, we need to take this into account that the next virus could spread equally fast, and so no excuses anymore uh, the, the next time. And I think in the future, countries need to work more together and need to be much better prepared. So I can only say that, indeed, we were not prepared well enough. Thank you. And I mean, we certainly always appreciate at Politico when people are, are honest, uh, looking back at, at things that could have been could have been different or could have been better. Um, my, my last couple of questions are just some practical things for our listeners who are cooped up um, in their in their homes. Um, 
you know, our French colleagues are jealous of those of us who are in uh, in uh, Belgium, and likewise, our Italian colleagues are jealous because the French and Italian governments put put much stricter limits on what this social isolation looks like. So I know in France, you have to have sort of a, a piece of paper saying what you're doing, and you can only leave for an hour a day, and you have to stay within a kilometer of your home. Whereas here in Belgium, uh, the notice I got from the government, even as they were extending the the social distancing period, they said, you're actually encouraged to go out for a walk. So uh, do we actually know if these kind of different gradations or, or levels of distancing, if they actually make a difference. It's very interesting what, what happens in different countries and how countries try to achieve basically the same thing. So we all want social distancing, but governments are trying to achieve this in a different way. It will be interesting to see eventually what worked best. I look at the data because in Belgium we have a, data, a task force against coronavirus, and this is really a task force looking at all the mobile telephone data. This is data coming from Proximus, from Telenet, and from Orange. And it's amazing what you can do, of course, with these data. Uh, you can follow people indeed in terms of their movements, their mobility, and you can see to what extent they follow the uh, recommendations of the government. And so I'm part of the ethical committee to make sure that they respect the rules of privacy. So we had a look at this data last week, and it was very interesting to see that, indeed, if you look at uh, mobility about 40 kilometers, that people, that they had a reduction of 93%. So people in long distance traveling has indeed reduced dramatically, used, and, it, and a short distance was around 50%. So that seems you can measure the impact of, of your, of your uh, policy, uh, and that helps you then as a government to decide, should I go down the road to the French and impose more or should we keep it as it is? Another important thing, I think, is what I call social c controlling. And I've been pleading for this in Belgium as well. And I don't know to what extent that is accepted, but people could uh, indeed ask other people who, have, who are not behaving to kindly, uh, let's say, adhere to the, to the rules or at least to what the government has decided. And that, again, may differ from country to country and it may differ for what people might accept in, in the country. But you see some very interesting uh, differences, and I think it depends to a large extent on the cultural differences, and I think it depends to a large extent in the faith of the population in their government. Oh, indeed, I actually did not really realize that Proximus was uh, was uh, keeping track of whether I'm following the rules. So that's that's good to know. Um, I'm, sh I'm sure we'll have some very different, interesting data as well on uh, Flanders versus Wallonia, but we'll have to uh, delve into that another time. Um, I think our our listeners would kill us if we didn't at least ask you when you think this is going to be lifted. So um, I'm not a modeler. I've spoken to our excellent modelers uh, in Belgium yesterday. Um, they told me that, that, let's say, we don't see this uh, exponential increase anymore. And so it seems to be kind of not really flattening, but increasing less dramatically, at least in Belgium. So I think that that's so far it's looking good. Uh, that doesn't mean that people should be more relaxed. Quite on the contrary, it means that they should at least see that uh, if they adhere to the recommendations, that it has an effect, that it works. And so that's, I think, a very hopeful message. If you stick to the rules, it works. Now, when can we relax these measures? 
I think, to be honest, that it's going to be uh, early May, certainly in Belgium. And I don't think we should say from one day to the next, okay, back to normal life. I think we need to see gradually, based on these models and hopefully some good data, how you should do this gradually, a bit like the Chinese are doing now. So that's going to be a very delicate balance. But I think we need to be honest by saying that it's not going to be back to normal life end of April or early May. It's not. And this virus is not going to disappear. This virus might cause another uh, a peak or let's say maybe another big peak, um, uh, maybe another sharp peak, where this virus is going to come back maybe once, maybe twice, maybe again next year. It's all a matter of keeping it under control and control and making sure we have enough hospital beds, enough intensive care unit, uh, beds to look after our patients, but also making sure that the economy doesn't collapse. And then the dramatic effect will be huge, not only afterwards on our economy, but also on the health of people who lose their jobs, who are very distressed. And so I think you need to find a good balance. And that's also, of course, a very a, a big concern for the future. Uh, can I ask you a couple, one sort of big picture question and one very specific one. One thing that we've noticed uh, develop over time, a, a colleague uh, of mine mentioned, there seems to be across Europe very different attitudes to masks. We're seeing in some countries people wearing them very widely in public and um, politicians wearing them at meetings. Um Whereas the advice at the start was, unless you have symptoms, uh, you know, there's no need for you to wear a mask. And in fact, you shouldn't be wearing a mask because those masks are needed by other people. Do you have any, you know, advice or a review on that? This is a difficult question. Uh, I think the two, two, let's say, two answers to that question. First, we have a huge problem in the uh, amount of masks that are available for the moment. Uh, so we need to make sure that these masks are being used or are available, I should say, for the healthcare workers, because those are the people we need, really need to protect. We need to make sure that they are not infected and that we don't lose them as very important workers in our healthcare system. Now, suppose you do, we would have enough masks. Should we then wear a mask? To be honest, if you look at the evidence, there isn't that much evidence that indeed it protects you against uh, being infected by this virus. Um, and even more so, it gives a false sense of security. Because people who wear masks, who are, let's say, walking around in the community, uh, they feel kind of safe or safer, and you may have less strict adherence to hand-washing uh, rules. Um, and so that's then the opposite effect that you might have. Mm. And just in general, right now, we've looked, we've kind of looked back, but right now, do you think now all the appropriate measures are being taken, or do you still look around and think there's something that we're not doing that we really should be doing right now? Politicians are having a hard time uh, because they need to base their decision on scientific evidence. And we don't always have that scientific evidence. I looked at the communication of experts during the Mexican flu. And one thing that I learned from this was that you need to be honest as an expert. If you know what the answer is based on scientific evidence, you should give the answer. If you don't know what the answer is, because this scientific evidence is basically not theirs. You should also say that. But what you should not do is to minimize the threat if you don't have the evidence. You see what I mean? And that's oh. another mistake that I think many people made in Europe, also experts made in Europe, by minimizing the threat because simply they didn't have the evidence to assess how big the threat was. Right, so they took a kind of absence of, of evidence as evidence of absence, right, which was not the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I think we should probably leave it there. We could we could talk much longer, but I, I, I'm sure you have other important work to do. Um, Professor, thanks very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. And now let's continue our conversation and talk about testing with our health reporter, Carmen Pound. Hi, Carmen. Hi, Andrew. How's the toddler behaving? He's been better this week. No, no more assaults on the computer. Okay. Um, just dragging me to dance with him. He has a dancing taxi and he dances with it and he wants everyone else to do the same. A dancing taxi? Yes, it's a taxi that moves around and sings at the same time. Oh, wow. I think we all need one of those right now. <laughs> Yes. Um, anyway, great. Thanks very much for, for joining us. And we want to talk to you about something you've been looking into in some detail. There's a lot of uh, talk about it at the moment, a lot of attention focused on it, and that is coronavirus testing. From the piece, the, the research that you did recently, what was your kind of overall takeaway, if you can put it that simply, on, on where we stand in Europe with testing? So far, it looks that most countries are actually prioritizing testing to the most severe cases, which seem to make um, make sense because since we have cases in the thousands or tens of thousands in some countries and supplies are running really dry in terms of labs, in terms of all the chemicals that you need to actually um, analyze a sample, um, many healthcare systems, many hospitals are only testing the people actually admitted to the hospital because they want to make sure that um, if they do have coronavirus, um, they'll be properly isolated and they wouldn't infect other patients and healthcare workers. And obviously, they would need to know how to treat them or how to alleviate the symptoms since there's no real treatment yet for um, for this disease. Those that have milder symptoms or maybe no symptoms at all, but suspect that they might have been exposed to someone um, with coronavirus, I usually advise to just stay home, uh, self-isolate, because as one Finnish health official said about two weeks ago, testing is not a cure. So even if you do know that you have it, but you do not have any sort of condition that requires you to go to a hospital and, and be hospitalized, then you should be able to just stay at home and write it out at home while making sure that you don't infect someone else. And is there are there any kind of dissenting voices on this? I mean, the thing that you hear obviously often is about South Korea, who tested very widely and seemed to use that also as a way to, to trace other people who may have been infected. Is there a view among some people that this is the wrong approach? Or is it basically the only approach given the limited availability of these things? There have definitely been calls for countries to ramp up testing because obviously if we only focus testing to the most severe cases, we really don't know the exact um, extent of the of the epidemic in Europe. Um, but obviously, you know, countries have to see whether they can scale that up. There, the, the UK, France, uh, Spain and Austria, among others, uh, have said that they will do their best to increase supplies of testing to make sure that they can test wider because indeed the South Korean example is that they tested really uh, people that had been exposed to confirmed cases and then they could isolate only those people. They wouldn't, they didn't need to put put basically the whole country into lockdown, which is what has happened in many European countries. But obviously, obviously, there's still a debate about how you actually get those supplies, because all those companies producing those supplies now are operating at maximum capacity. They're having logistical problems with all the border checks that have been erected in Europe. And it's, it's really hard to be able to all of a sudden ramp up their production to satisfy this, this huge demand for, for testing supplies. Mm. And the other thing that we've heard a lot of talk about, I think particularly in the UK, is the idea of, of some kind of antibody test being available fairly soon and, and being able 
to be kind of rolled out pretty widely. What would be the usefulness of that test? Just to, to make this difference, because I think in some cases it's still not fully understood, there are two types of tests, the so-called molecular test, which is what countries are using now um, to be able to detect if someone is actually infected um, in this right moment. Um, and then it gets sent to a lab and, and processed there, and then the, the result comes back. And then you have the antibody test that usually use blood to see whether someone has developed antibodies to the virus. The downside of that is that it takes a while to, it takes a while for the antibodies to actually uh, be produced. So you might have symptoms, but you might not have antibodies. And if you only rely on an antibody test, um, you might get a negative, but you might actually already have the virus. Uh, One thing that this um, test could be useful for is to actually see how many people have been infected. So they are seen maybe as a solution to scaling down lockdown to test people with antibody tests to see how many people have been infected, maybe whether they have um, developed some sort of immunity to the virus, and then slowly but surely um, allow things to go back to normal. But it's still it's still work in, in progress to get there. Right. And it, it does seem like we don't really know. For the, the assumption seems to be among some people anyway, that if you've had uh, the virus, then you've built up resistance to it, and then you're kind of okay to get back out into the community and go about your business. But we don't really know that for sure, right? Indeed, there's not enough evidence to say whether people develop immunity and how long that immunity lasts. Some say it might be similar to the flu. You can still get the flu even if you had it. Um, But there's still a lot of research going on to be able to determine that for sure. Okay, I think that covers it. Thanks, Carmen. And before we talk about the economy, let's take a quick moment to answer the question that's surely on everybody's mind right now, which is, what does a dancing taxi sound like? Thanks to Carmen for sharing that home video with our audience. Yay! Well, continuing our adventures in broadcast improvisation... Bjarke Smith-Meyer joins us now. Bjarke, where are you? In a cupboard? I, I am, yeah. No, I've, uh, I've managed to sit inside of uh, a closet uh, of all my girlfriend's dresses in order to make the sound quality perfect. So there you go. Wow. That's an image uh, that it may take some time to get out of our minds. Um, <laughs> let us uh, move to more serious things. And um, something that blew up again over the weekend, it's been a real kind of... Um, I was going to say a running sore, I don't know if that's the right expression, but it just seems to have touched a nerve across Europe, is this whole issue of how to fund what everybody obviously hopes will be an economic recovery after the coronavirus. And a lot of that has crystallised around the idea of so-called corona bonds. Um, Can you just explain briefly what the idea behind corona bonds is? What would they actually be? The idea is pretty simple. Uh, All EU countries or Eurozone countries pool their debt and they then uh, raise bonds on the market, uh, which they can then pull from at lower borrowing rates than they would at the national level. Uh, And then that would be able to help fund the recovery in a more affordable way. The only catch is that if a government were to go bankrupt, then the other governments would have to stand in and pay the bill. And that's what Germany and uh, the Dutch are particularly worried about. 
Right, so the idea is this would be debt that was guaranteed by the EU as a whole or, or all of its member countries. So rather than Italy going to the market or, or going to wherever and saying, um, please lend me money, uh, you know, I am the Italian government, this is my track record. It's basically the whole of Europe behind you when, you, when, you're, borrowing this, when you're borrowing this money. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's the way to, to think of it. But at the moment, it seems that particularly the Germans and the Dutch would rather stick to existing policy tools that they have. So in particular, the Eurozone bailout fund and, and use their instruments uh, that are currently implemented uh, rather than going through the politically sort of dangerous path of trying to design a corona bond, which isn't exactly easy to do, and then issue it in time to fund the recovery. Okay. And so, and as you say, there are other ideas being floated in terms of how to uh fund the recovery, if you like. And you've actually kind of been through a few of them and kind of graded their likelihood. You just you mentioned one of them, uh, the Eurozone bailout fund, uh, also known as the European Stability Mechanism, right, the ESM. Just talk us through a few of the other ideas out there. Well, so the most likely one to actually uh, become anything is these credit lines that the uh, ESM are uh, can offer countries that are in trouble. It's quite a simple idea. You could think of it as a bank account overdraft. Uh, so if you suddenly run out of money, then you know that the bank is there to still lend you a bit of money, but albeit for a little fee. Uh, the main question mark around this is what kind of conditions come with a credit line. And right now there's talk of two. One, that the money is specifically spent on health and uh, the economic cost of the virus. And then the second one, a promise to balance uh, a government's books in the long term. Now, the southern countries don't like the idea of having to negotiate conditions, uh, but because they have no leverage and their backs against the wall, they might just have to accept them. Okay. Anything else? Any other uh, sort of proposals doing the rounds? I mean, we hear uh, the European Commission president again, as she was trying to kind of extricate herself from uh, trouble caused by some comments she made at the weekend about Corona bonds, um, you know, calling them a slogan, which went down uh, very badly in Italy. Um, she has, you know, mentioned several times the EU budget, the multi-annual financial um, framework. Are, are there any kind of instruments or, or things that they can use within the EU budget that might be useful? Yeah, so so as you mentioned, I mean, uh, van der Leyen also gave a pretty good indication of how unlikely corona bonds are. And EU budget is probably the more likely candidate in her eyes uh, in that you could front load uh, some of the next seven-year budget and help use that money to help fund the recovery. Uh, that's the budget angle. There, there is another budget discussion that sort of filter in to all of this, which has kind of been forgotten a little bit uh, in the midst of this crisis. And that's coming up with an unemployment reinsurance plan. Uh, the idea is pretty simple. The commission uh, could uh, very quickly back up national jobless uh, benefits by basically handing over more money to depleted uh, national schemes. But you need to be able to guarantee any debt that you might raise on the markets in order to fund this unemployment reinsurance. Uh, and that's where the problem is right now, because the EU budget is about to run dry at the end of the year. And if you don't have a lot of money there to guarantee your debt, then you might not be able to raise a lot of debt. Uh, those, those are the sort of the, the main ideas kicking around. Um, the European Investment Bank is also another potential proposal. Uh, their president pitched an idea where 
he could guarantee an extra 200 billion euros in loans to, to firms of all sizes uh, as long as finance ministers uh, cough up an extra 25 billion euros and hand it to him. Uh, and then we have the, the very final option, which is just do nothing. Now, this might be uh, almost a suicidal thing to do when you think about the impact it could have on the idea of EU solidarity. But let's remember that the Commission has already redirected 37 billion euros to help companies and the like. You also have this general release clause, which has been triggered by the Commission, which means that states can go ahead and spend as much money as they want to help fund a recovery or at least cushion a potential meltdown of the economy. And state aid uh, rules have also been loosened to make sure that companies can be propped up better. Uh, and let's not forget the fact that the European Central Bank will be buying up to, if not a little bit more than a trillion euros of government and company bonds throughout the rest of this year. So there is actually a lot of stuff in place. It's just right now we need something symbolic to say to EU citizens and to investors that, you know, we, we have each other's backs. Uh, Bjarke, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back with another episode on Thursday when we'll have European Commissioner Nicholas Schmidt, who's in charge of jobs and social rights, to talk about the coronavirus impact on unemployment and what the EU is doing on that front. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And as I mentioned earlier, drop us an email at podcast at politico.eu if you have any ideas for guests or topics. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.